The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon, a national democratic strategist, a columnist of the Hill, and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications, is the sponsor of today's show. My Twitter handle, if you'd like to chat with me, is Brad Bannon, all one word. Monday Monday on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the policies and politics that drive our great nation forward. This week on Deadline DC, we'll discuss the twin threats to the health and well-being of the world. In the first segment, Dr. Bob Bollinger from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine joins me to discuss the deadly pandemic. Then Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Demlist, and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi join me on the provocative progressive political panel to discuss the International Climate Change Conference. But before we get to our first guest, we're going to listen to this uh, soundbite from a group of pediatricians in Minnesota on child immunization. By vaccinating children in our community, we'll be able to decrease the spread in our community and help keep our kids in school, keep our kids participating in activities. They'll have fewer exposures, fewer risks, and fewer infections. It's time that we have something for these children to help them get back to normal. Getting your child vaccinated shows love for your child. Nobody wants their child to have a shot if they don't need one, but we are seeing kids get hospitalized and even end up in our ICUs with COVID-19. Now, if you're concerned that people can still catch COVID after getting their vaccine, I'd say you're correct. We do get some infrequent breakthrough cases, as they're called, happening in the U.S., but I'm here to tell you that we're not seeing those young people getting admitted to the hospital. The vaccines we have are safe and effective. We know that children have suffered from COVID-19. They get sick, sometimes they end up in the hospital, sometimes they recover, but end up with long-term symptoms, and sometimes they even die from a vaccine-preventable disease. As excited as I was to get vaccinated with COVID-19, I'm even more excited to get my kids vaccinated. I have twin boys and I want nothing more than to be as safe as I am. This vaccine is safe, effective, and we know it produces a robust antibody response after two weeks. If you have any questions about whether you should get the COVID vaccine for your kids, please reach out to your pediatrician, your family medicine doctor, or another trusted healthcare provider. We're here to help you make those hard decisions and answer questions that you might have about safety. Okay, uh, our guest in this half hour to talk about uh, the pandemic in general and immunization of young children in particular is Dr. Bob Bollinger. Uh, Bob is the uh, 
Professor of Infectious Diseases at John Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Bollinger has four decades of experience in international public health, clinical research, and education. Dr. Bollinger, uh, thanks very much for joining us today on Deadline DC. Hi, Brad. Nice to be here. Uh, we'll talk about child immunization in a minute, but I'd like to get a status and update on where the uh, nation is in the fight against the pandemic. Well, you know, uh, unfortunately, after uh, seeing a, a significant decline uh, uh, since our fall peak, uh, we're now seeing upticks uh, again, uh, particularly up in the Midwest, uh, northern states. Um, and so unfortunately, uh, we're sort of uh, stalled in our um, in our decline. So I'm, I'm a little concerned about that, and I, I'm sure many others are as well. Okay. Uh, well, let's. Uh, w- why is this happening, in particular in the Upper Midwest? Is it, is it a matter of people not getting vaccinations, or what? It's probably a combination of that and the fact that uh, in the colder, you know, weather, people tend to gather more indoors, and so there is a greater opportunity for the virus to spread as it as it does as the flu virus does, and as this virus spread last time during the colder weather. Okay, and does that suggest as we hold, we uh, go into colder weather? Well, let me ask you this question: We're heading for the holiday season, where there are a lot of people traveling. I saw something on television that they're going to be record traveling this Thanksgiving because people didn't go to visit their families and friends last Thanksgiving. Uh, then we got the, the holidays: Christmas, Hanukkah, and every everything else. And the weather is going to be colder, uh, which means that people. People are going to be indoors more. Uh, do you anticipate another upsurge in the pandemic, or hopefully, are we past that? Well, I think we're going to see an ups- upsurge. The question is uh, how big of an upsurge. I think it will be better than it has been in the past. Uh, for for primarily because sixty percent of the population uh, is already fully vaccinated. Uh, so that that proportion of the population is going to be well protected from getting sick and ending up in the hospital. For those that are unvaccinated, it's going to be uh, a real challenge. But I think uh, for the, the hospital systems, um, it'll be more manageable this year than it was um, this, this time last year. And what advice, since we're on the subject, what advice do you have people who are thinking of traveling during Thanksgiving or the you know the holiday season uh, about traveling and gathering with their friends? What advice do you have for them? Well, uh, first of all, get vaccinated, of course, and if you're eligible, get your booster vaccine before those those holidays. Um, and then just, uh, you know, I think we, we can be more cautious um, during those times, but not uh, be as concerned as we were this time last year, particularly if you're around other vaccinated people. It's it's much safer than it was uh, previously. If you're concerned, uh, what I, a lot of people are doing is in addition to being vaccinated, if they're going to be in a large group is getting themselves um, a, a quick rapid test uh, before they gather in large groups, particularly indoors, just as an extra safety measure. So that's that's pretty common and and, and a good idea, perhaps, in, in some cir- circumstances. Uh, by the way, what is roughly the uh, current vaccination rate? What percentage of Americans have got uh, both their shots? Uh, we're somewhere just shy of 60 percent. Uh, fully vaccinated, which of course means there's another 40% that are partially or not vaccinated at all. I think the opportunity to get the children vaccinated is going to help uh, push that up. Uh, I certainly hope so. 
you know, there's still a lot, you know, honestly, I don't understand. Uh, I just got my booster shot uh, last week. So I've got three shots now. Uh, there are people out there who refuse to get one. Some some famous, uh, the uh, NFL quarterback uh, for the Green Bay Packers, uh, Aaron Rodgers, has become the latest cause celeb about not getting shots. And he's got COVID. And my guess is some members of his team will now get COVID and probably spread it to their families. Uh, you know, what do you have to say to the people who are so resistant to getting vaccinations? What kind of case can you make to them? Well, it's it's difficult, uh, Brad, as, as you've already pointed out, because there's uh, people people avoid vaccination for lots of different reasons. You know, um, sometimes because they're they, you know, they've been given misinformation that just isn't true um, uh, from people that they believe. And, and that's unfortunate. It's difficult for people to to make good decisions if they're getting misinformation. Um, so I, you know, and for those that refuse to, uh, even with the information they have, and uh, even with the information we know is true about its safety and efficacy, uh, I don't know what to say to those people who just uh, refuse to care about, uh, you know, I can understand people uh, being concerned about their own um, willingness to be vaccinated, but, but we're doing this not just for ourselves, but for our community, for our family members, we're, we're, we're protecting others as well as ourselves with vaccination. I don't know what to say to those folks who still refuse to be vaccinated. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. I just, I just mentioned I got my booster shot uh, last week. Uh, am I going to have to get or and, and other Americans going to have to keep getting booster shots every six months or so? Is that part of our future now? Well, I don't know if we'll need it every six months, but uh, it looks like, uh, look, you know, this is we've been uh, building this airplane as we've started to fly it. Right. So we're getting information all the time that helps you know us make better, helps us make better decisions about this. So it looks like uh, two shots uh, are, are excellent uh, in protecting people, uh, particularly reducing the risk of hospitalization for a while. Uh, but after that, the, they probably need a, a booster around six months, and that's what we're seeing now. I think that might last longer than six months, and we may, may you know, just like flu, perhaps we need an annual booster. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but we have other vaccines for which we need multiple shots to get full immunity, so that's nothing too surprising. Okay. Our guest in this half hour of Deadline DC is Dr. Bob Bollinger from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. We're talking about the pandemic in general. When we get back from this break, uh, we'll talk about child immunization, which is uh, starting across the country. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of Dr. Bob Bollinger, uh, John Hopkins School of Medicine, uh, right after these messages and more of Deadline DC. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest this half hour is a Bollinger, who is the professor of professors of infectious diseases at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Uh, by the way, for those of you who are listening to us uh, on the radio, uh, if you would like to watch us as well as listen to us, there are all sorts of ways you can do it. Uh, first of all, on Twitter. Uh, at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon, on Facebook at tinyurl.com front slash BB Facebook Live, 
uh, and on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. Our guest in this half hour again is Dr. Bob Bollinger from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Bollinger, what kind of future uh, do we have? Assuming this thing dissipates, is this something that is, is COVID something that we're always going to have to deal with? Or is it going to, you know, re be reduced to a level where we don't have to worry about it anymore? What's our future look like in regards to the pandemic? Well, uh, tough question to answer, Brad. I don't have a crystal ball, of course, but based on what we've seen so far, um, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of this uh, virus from from the world. Uh, I think we're going to be dealing with it, but it will be in a hopefully in a very different situation. Um, I would suspect similar to what we see with regular influenza every every season, where we have outbreaks periodically. The other good news, I think, is that we have some medications in the pipeline that um, pills uh, that seem to have some uh, benefit in high risk people to reduce their, their, their need for hospitalization. So in addition to combining the vaccination to prevent infection with better treatments, uh, it's going to be a more manageable problem, I hope. And, uh, and I hope it happens soon because, um, you know, we all want to get there as fast as we can to a, a, you know, a more normal situation. But it's never, I don't think, ever going to be, uh, certainly not in my lifetime, we're going to get rid of this virus. We're just going to have to live with it and learn how to live with it better. Okay. Uh, one of the, and this has um, become a uh, move from being a health care to a political issue. Uh, about a month, several few weeks ago, uh, President Biden uh, issued an executive order that mandates that all uh businesses with 100 or more employees, uh, a mandate uh, that they had to get their uh, uh, get themselves vaccinated against COVID. Uh, and this has become a political issue because um, in the last few days, a U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, said that the president's order uh, may be unconstitutional and deserved uh, a, a further hearing for so for the time being the um, business mandate uh is inoperative uh was the uh the president's mandate a good idea well we have other mandates don't we uh, in society to make um our environment our workplace our schools safer for ourselves and others um you know there are many examples of things we can't do uh that increase the risk uh, to others and things we must do to, to protect others in our work and, and, and our schools. So uh, it's not like we don't have other mandates. The question I think is, is um, you know, uh, do the mandates, uh, you know, or is the cost of that justify, justified by the prevention that, and, you know, and the safety we achieve with it? And I think in this case, we clearly do. I mean, the more people we get vaccinated, um, and the more we uh, require that to uh, people to be vaccinated, the safer our workplace, the safer our schools, the safer our families, the safer our communities will be. This is a deadly disease. It's a once in a century global pandemic. This is not business as usual. So we unfortunately we've got to uh, you know, we've got to take some steps to make uh, make ourselves in a you know, uh, move past this. And if we don't, uh, we're going to have to deal with these uh, continuing spikes. We don't get more people vaccinated. So I actually support the mandates primarily to, to protect others who are vulnerable. Uh, I, you know, I heard somebody say one time uh, recently who was, who was originally vaccine hesitant, 
that, uh, you know, they finally decided that they needed to do it for others because and for the country, because it wasn't like they were being asked to storm the beach at Normandy. They've been they were just asked to wear a mask and get a shot. Um, and so I think, you know, if we had more people willing to, to take that attitude, we wouldn't need the mandates. But unfortunately, the, I think we're going to need them. Well, yeah, to me, that that's the, the thing that upsets me most. Uh, you know, I'm not crazy about having to get shots. Uh, you know, especially if I have to, you know, if it's another yearly thing I have to do. But, you know, to me, the large level of resistance to vaccination, you know, tells me that there's something wrong in this country. Uh, yeah, you know, you don't want to great, you know, you're concerned about vaccinations. You don't want to get one because somebody tells you to, uh, some person in a figure authority tells you to, but Jesus, think of other people. And I think that's part of a problem why we are live in such turmoil in the United States these days is Americans don't have much regard uh, for the commonwealth and I, I, you know, the common health. Uh, and I just think that, uh, you know, it's selfishness. Uh, and I hope people get over it because I, to me, this is a very troubling sign psychologically. Uh, it just, it just, it bothers me a lot. Uh, there's one more last question I'd like to ask you before you go. What, have we learned any lessons about our healthcare system from this pandemic? Uh, hospitals were incredibly overburdened, nurses and doctors were. Do you think it will lead to any fundamental changes in our healthcare system, or hope it does? Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, you know, it just, it show, it's shown a bright light on a lot of disparities that we knew existed, right? That's another thing that, uh, that this pandemic has taught us, is that the, 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 Parts of our society at greatest risk, um, uh, you know, were also those who had less access to care, less access to um, to support, um, and the communities uh, that that you know couldn't afford to telecommute, for example, um, and had to go out and work were the ones at greatest risk. And uh, I think that's an important lesson. We've got to do do more to address those disparities um, uh, in the communities that that suffered the most. Uh, you know, we. As an example, the, the, life, the life expectancy in the United States declined by 1.5 years because of pandemic uh, COVID. But it's three, three years if you were an African-American or black American. So twice as uh, big an impact on, on, on that community. And so that's just a reflection of the disparities that existed before COVID. So I hope that uh, we can address those as well as as, as address the uh, the lessons learned uh, to, that that we need to invest in the public health system more generally to prevent this from happening in the in the in the future. That's incredibly startling. I'd heard about the overall figure, but I didn't know that the uh, uh, life expectancy for African Americans had dropped by three years because of the pandemic. I had not heard that before. That's very troubling. Very troubling. Uh, Dr. Bollinger, thank you very much for joining us. Our guest in this half hour was Dr. Bob Bollinger uh, from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He's a professor of infectious diseases that, uh, there. Uh, we're going to break now, but we come back. We will have our provocative progressive political panel where we'll talk about another threat to the world's health, uh, climate change. Uh, our guest will be uh, Kim Scott from Demlist, who attended the Climate Change Conference in Scotland. 
and our own progressive activist, Mark Armaldi. We'll be right back after these messages. And thank you to Dr. Bollinger again. Welcome back to Headline DC with Brad Bannon. We're going to start this half hour off with a clip from President Biden before we get to the provocative progressive political panel. We meet with the eyes of history upon us and the profound questions before us. It's simple. Will we act? Will we do what is necessary? Will we seize the enormous opportunity before us? Or will we condemn future generations to suffer? This is the decade that will determine the answer, this decade. The science is clear. We only have a brief window left before us to raise our ambitions and to raise to meet the task that's rapidly narrowing. Keep the goal of limiting global warming to just 1.5 degrees Celsius within our reach if we come together. If we commit to doing our part of each of our nations with determination and with ambition. That's what COP26 is all about. Glasgow must be the kickoff of a decade, a decade of ambition and innovation to preserve our shared future. Climate change is already ravaging the world. We've heard from many speakers. It's not hypothetical. It's not a hypothetical threat. It's destroying people's lives and livelihoods and doing it every single day. It's costing our nations trillions of dollars. Record heat and drought, fueling more widespread and more intense wildfires in some places and crop failures in others. Record flooding and what used to be a once in a century storms are now happening every few years. In the past few months, the United States has experienced all of this and every region of the world can tell similar stories. And in an age where this pandemic is made so painfully clear that no nation can wall itself, wall itself off from borderless threats, we know that none of us can escape the worst that's yet to come if we fail to seize this moment. That was President Biden speaking to the International Climate Conference in uh, Glasgow, Scotland, which we'll uh, talk about. Uh, this half hour is uh, brought to you by Bannon Communications Research, uh, my company, which polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Uh, first of all, a few words. Uh, President Biden just signed the bipartisan uh, Investment and Jobs Act. He was supposed to, at uh, just as we went, this show aired. Uh, so hopefully he's done it by now. The new law is a good first step, but not good enough to fundamentally reform and revitalize the economy that faces major threats. The basic infrastructure funding bill will modernize our outdated and archaic electronic and transportation infrastructure. But the real jewel in the economic crown is the Build Back Better plan. The Infrastructure Act is a positive step, but has not addressed the serious obstacles to the future growth of the United States, such as education, climate change, and income inequality. 
hopefully the better build back better plan will address those problems uh, when the House and Senate ever get around to passing it. Passing the basic package without the premium package is like building a bridge only halfway across the chasm that separates our immediate needs from our hopes for health, wealth, and well-being in the future. Basic infrastructure funding is just maintenance. Build Back Better is transformative. That brings us, uh, you, oh, by the way, you can read the rest of this column and all my columns to the Hill at muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon. Now it's time for the provocative progressive panel on the provocative progressive political panel on climate change. Our guest in the panel today is Kimberly Scott. Uh, Kim is publisher of Demlist and the editor of Dem Daily, a political column dedicated to educating and informing the public about the Democratic Party, policy, and politics. Sign up for the column is at www.demlist.com. The Twitter handle is The Demlist. Joining Kim on the panel is liberal activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has worked for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. He is also active in campaign finance reform and efforts to promote cancer research. Mark's Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. That's Mark J. G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. And uh, I just wanted to add a personal note here. You've probably uh, read a lot, if you pay attention to politics, about uh, Bannon being indicted and arrested for refusing to testify before the Congressional Committee uh, investigating the Capitol coup. I just want to make it clear, I would be glad to cooperate for Congress and the, and the uh, guy who was uh, indicted and arrested for refusing to testify is Steve Bannon. Uh, no relation uh, and not me. So uh, don't send me any more hate emails, please. Uh, okay. Uh, our first guest on the panel today is Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Demlist. Now, Kim's on today because she is a great guest, but also because she attended the International Climate Change Conference in uh, Scotland, uh, which just ended on Friday, I believe. So, Kim, before we go any further, why don't you just describe what the atmosphere was like uh, in Glasgow, what the mood was? Well, I can tell you one thing that one takeaway from my week in Glasgow is that this is not a political issue. It's not a party issue. It is a human survival issue. And the energy and the urgency of that was evident there. Um, there were two main... Uh, venues, the um, the blue zone and the green zone. The blue zone was where all the dignitaries, there were 120 heads of states, uh, 25,000 de 25, delegates, um, including major delegations from the United States. Um, I think there were 14 U.S. senators, 28 members of Congress, 13 cabinet secretaries that came. Um, and then there was the green zone, which was open to the public, which was four floors of like absolutely innovative, creative displays and interactive panels of, of things having to do with climate change that showed you exactly what we are doing 
to Mother Earth. Uh, but the, the energy was incredible. It was just so many people so dedicated and, and very serious, you know, unlike a say political party convention where you had uh, people roaming everywhere and going to parties and events and other things like that. This was every single thing there was very, it was dedicated to educating and informing, uh, not just the participants, but the public on how serious this issue is. Okay. Uh, and what was the mood there? Were people optimistic, pessimistic, or a mixture of both? I Some climate activists uh, were kind of skeptical about the conference because they just thought it'd be a lot more talk. Um, there are probably other people who don't want to see any uh progress on climate change at all. What was the mood there generally? Um, I, I think the skepticism is warranted. Um, you know, this was the 26th meeting of the, the signatories to the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the goal was to um, accelerate action towards the goals of the 2015 Paris Accord, uh, which is groundbreaking, and that was to reach global net zero carbon emissions by mid-century. Um, and as the week progressed, <clears throat> all of that was being tracked, but it was uh, and examined. And then the political pressure around each of the countries, and particularly the United States, um, was very heavy as far as our participation on each of, one, each of these major goals. Um, you know, there were a lot of people skeptical about whether Biden could deliver and still skeptical about whether Biden can deliver after Trump withdrew from the Paris Accord um, and whether the United States could retake its position on the world stage. And I think for the most part that Biden proved that, but did not deliver 100 percent. OK, uh, we are in the middle of the uh, provocative progressive political panel uh, and uh, deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we're going to go to a break now, but we come back from the great break. We'll have more on climate change from our with our guest, Kimberly Scott, the uh, publisher of Demlist uh, and the writer, editor and everything else of Dem Daily and our own uh progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of Deadline DC uh, and the battle against climate change. Uh, so uh, don't go anywhere. Uh, we're going to break, but we'll be back very quickly. So uh, don't rush to the fridge to grab a beer. We're talking about the International Climate Change Conference, uh, which uh, just recently adjourned in uh, Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, our guests are Kim Scott, the publisher of Demlist, who attended the conference in Scotland, and our own progressive activist and executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. Mark, let me ask you this. 
uh, now that you've had time to see and read about what went on in uh, Scotland, uh, do you think this is going to amount to anything more than just a lot of talk? Or do you think they'll actually find a way to meet the goal, uh, which is to limit uh, the increase in uh, in um, the temperature of the planet to 1.1 and a half Celsius? Do you think anything will come of this, Mark? I think that you know, some you you can definitely argue that something has already come of it in the form of the agreement, um, because without that, you know, you can't just trust these countries to just do a good enough job on their own. Obviously, if they were going to, that would have already happened. You need this pressure from other nations um, on each other, and you need to come together to do so. I do think that uh, most of it we, remains to be seen because, um, as you know, Kim uh, witnessed, you know, when covering this, there, the the agreement is, you know, not. I, I wouldn't say very binding in the sense that it's up to the countries to um follow through with these these pledges um and you know that is something that is concerning obviously i'd rather have it be in a more binding fashion but in order to get um you know some of these nations to agree to that it had to be formed in that way uh the other thing that i think um was the frustrating part also was that the um phasing out of uh, fossil fuels, specifically coal, was slowed down by India at the conference, and they um, forced language changes to the agreement that if we're not put in there, it sounded like it, there was risk of the agreement falling apart. So it was basically you know, necessary in order to get any agreement whatsoever. Um, however, there is phasing out of fossil fuels um, you know, for the first time, really mentioned in one of these agreements and in a major way. Um, and then there's also, as Kim mentioned, the deforestation, uh, which is huge. Um, and, and also, I think President Biden deserves credit for his work on uh, methane emissions, reducing those because um, they trap heat uh, exponentially faster than uh, carbon dioxide. So it's something that's very important to get a handle on if we're going to uh, to, to make a difference. Um, it's actually 80 times the heat trapping power of carbon dioxide um, is methane. So the fact that there is an agreement to cut these methane emissions by 30% by 2030, I think is very substantial as well. Um, there was a push to have the countries meet again sooner than every five years, which I think would have been very smart because, you know, five years is a long time when you're talking about having to make this, uh, these, this many changes with this many countries in a decade. Um, that said, they couldn't come to a specific agreement on doing that every year um, because my understanding is there was pushback from China in regards to that. But there, um, there is almost like, I guess you could say a happy medium to come back with more aggressive standards by the major players in 2022. So I think it's a mixed bag. Um, it's not as bad as I feared in some ways, but it's not as good as I hoped in other ways. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's all blah, 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 although Greta Thunberg knows this a lot better than I do. Um, and I would have much rather had her in charge of these agreements um, so we could get this all done. 
but I do think that there's some major improvements uh, where if we can change it from the current path of two point where we would be at 2.7 degrees Celsius higher at the end of this decade, phasing it down from this agreement where you could get as low as 1.8 degrees. Um, basically what that does is makes it so that that 1.5 degrees is still attainable. So if you're on this 1.8 degree path, you meet the, the next uh, meeting in five years and you need to get it even lower so you can hit that 1.5 degrees. Well, you know, mathematically, you can still do that with more aggressive measures. That said, each of these countries is now going to go back home. They're left up. It's, it's left up to them in a lot of ways to follow through. And that makes me nervous um, because even if a lot of yeah. nations do, uh, who's to say some of the major players that, you know, are, are some of the bad actors with these emissions are going to, to follow through. So, um, you know, that, that does concern me for sure. Well, that brings me to our next question. Uh, international is great. Uh, but we all know all politics is local, uh, which brings us to the United States Congress. Uh, the house version of president Biden's build back better plan has half a trillion dollars in it, and it's basically uh, a quarter of the entire Build Back Better package, has uh, $50 billion or half a trillion dollars in it uh, for fighting climate change. Uh, now, uh, the problem is, uh, and I think uh, Senator McConnell pointed that out, uh, Senator McConnell said last week that the House can do anything it wants, uh, but when it comes down to the Senate, it's Joe Manchin who's going to write the bill, uh, the Senate bill, since he has the decisive vote in the Senate. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that uh, in order to fulfill the promises uh, that President Biden made in Glasgow, he is going to have to somehow uh, get uh, Senator Manchin to move on the Build Back Better uh, package. Now, as I said, uh, the president was supposed to sign the basic infrastructure funding bill uh, at uh, three o'clock. I don't know if he did or not, but he was supposed to when we went on the air. Uh, but that still leaves the glaring need for the bigger package. A lot of it is devoted to climate change. So my question to Kim is, uh, is Joe Biden going to be able to back up what he said uh, in Glasgow by getting the Senate to pass the uh, Build Back Better Act uh, with all that money for climate change in it? Or will Senator Manchin have the last say? I'm sure. President Biden believes that he'll be able to accomplish that. But I think it basically comes down to to Manchin. And as I said, it it was evident that poll in Glasgow because um, the United States did not agree um, to stop coal development at home, although they did promise to halt, halt overseas funding of oil, gas and coal. Um, but he could feel the strings being pulled. Uh, and that's, again, where the criticisms come. But Manchin's had an, uh, an unprecedented control for one individual U.S. senator on so much of the Biden agenda, because, and we've seen that um, as evident in, um, throughout the last year. Um, it's, you know, the bottom line is that we're, we may have control of the White House, 
the House and the Senate, but it's by such narrow margins. And so that means that the power comes down to a handful of one or two U.S. senators, and and Manchin is one of them. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mark, what do you think? Uh, do you think that uh, Joe Biden will be able to deliver on his climate change promises and get the Build Back Better bill through the Senate and through Senator Manchin uh, or not. Uh, And I should point out, and I assume Senator Manchin already knows this, if you look at that $500 billion in the Build Back Better plan for climate change, uh, millions of that money will go to communities that are distressed by the conversion away from coal and gas. And that includes West Virginia. Mark, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I think it, I, I, I'm hopeful that an agreement will get done. I think we're moving toward one. Um, unfortunately, that means a lot of the funding from the original $3.5 trillion plan has been cut. However, that $550 billion you're talking about, Brad, is in the new $1.5 trillion compromise. So I do think that that would make a major difference um, in, in fighting climate change. And to have that transition money would definitely, I think, help um, Senator Manchin go back to his community and make an argument that the bill is beneficial to those areas. Um, but I've learned not to get my hopes up about Senator Manchin. So I'm, I'm going to be hopeful overall and, um, you know, just do everything we can call his office, call your senators and your congressional members, um, and put the pressure on because now is the time to do so to let them know that you support this if you do, which, um, hopefully, you know, most Americans do because this is going to affect all of us, whether we like it or not. Yep. Uh, okay. Well, uh, sadly that's it for deadline DC with Brad Bannon today. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Bob Bollinger, uh, professor of infectious diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, uh, Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Demolist, uh, and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. Be safe and be strong in these very troubled times, and make sure you turn, tune in to Deadline DC Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, live or the podcast anytime uh, at uh, uh, twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. Talk to you next week and see you next week too.